Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 34, Anarchy 3, Resolution. Last week took us to the end of the most eventful year of the anarchy, and we've seen how Matilda failed to convert the golden opportunity she gained at Lincoln into a complete victory. But while success had eluded her in England, what about the Angevin cause in Normandy? I think I should reintroduce you to Geoffrey Plantagenet, the Count of Anjou and husband of the Empress. I should start explaining the name Plantagenet, with apologies to those of you who already know it. The name became attached to Geoffrey's descendants, who rule England until the Welsh take over in 1485. The name is not used at all at the time, and is not officially used until the 15th century. It comes from the broom plant, a sprig of which Geoffrey is supposed to have worn, since the Latin name for broom is Plantagenesta. As for Geoffrey himself, his biographer described him as Tall in body, handsome and ruddy in appearance, lean and taut with sparkling eyes, grown strong through nature and through exercise, gentle, charming and generous of spirit. Nice chap then. However, the images we have of kings and dukes are symbolic rather than truly representative and I suspect Jean Marmoutier's biography was meant to be in the same vein, so you'd be forgiven for taking the description with just a pinch of salt. But there is corroboration from other chroniclers who describe him as a man of great worth and energy. His reputation was as being well-read, with a great knowledge of antiquity, a lover of music and a cultured man. He was incidentally noted for reading Vetitius to help him in his castle warfare, which is something actually I keep meaning to mention when we talked about warfare a few weeks ago. Vegetius was the Roman author of a treatise called De Re Militarii on military strategy, written at Constantinople in 450, and it is worth noting that his work was widely known and used. 
point, I think, is that we tend to assume that through this Dark Age tag that everything from antiquity was lost. And that's absolutely, of course, not true. While we're on the topic, personally, I think modern historians make far too much fuss about the Dark Age tag and spend far too much time arguing about how these ages weren't dark and miserable at all, just different. I realise I'm digressing here, but I think that most of us are intelligent enough to realise that the term the Dark Ages refers to the lack of written documentation that survives and don't necessarily take it as a kind of general insult on 500 years of civilization. But anyway, enough of that. As we've heard, the Norman barons had no interest in Geoffrey's sparkling eyes and up to 1141 had been almost entirely successful in fighting him off. But when the Norman nobles heard about Stephen's capture, they expected to now have to make terms with the empress and indeed Geoffrey demanded that they submit to him. Despite all the evidence that this is exactly what they'd need to do, the Norman barons still hated the idea of an Angevin duke. So they gathered together and appealed to Stephen's brother Theobald of Bois to come and help them, but Theobald would have none of it. So many of the major barons reluctantly decided they simply had no choice and they began to submit. The most significant was Walleron of Merlon, who decided that his English lands would have to be left to his brother Robert Beaumont to maintain, while he would submit to Geoffrey for his Norman patrimony. After this, it appears to have been a matter of time only. Geoffrey's takeover of Normandy is more by way of recording which nobles decide to transfer their allegiance and when, rather than as a triumphant martial progress, and it still took Geoffrey a good deal of time. It took all of 1142 and 1143 for him to take Normandy west and south of the Seine, and then finally, in January 1144, he entered Rouen. There are some sieges along the way, notably the siege of the Tower of Rouen itself in 1144, but the situation was different to England, where the rout of Winchester in 1141 brought most nobles in England back to Stephen's side. The Norman barons were resigned to their fate. Stephen hadn't been seen in Normandy for years, had clearly decided to concentrate on England, so that was that. By 1145, Geoffrey was the Duke of Normandy and secure in that role, and by all accounts doing a good job. It's unlikely that he actually handed the rule of the duchy across to his son Henry, but it is certain that he associated Henry closely with it, and groomed him for it. This follows the tradition of kings having their barons swear allegiance to their sons before their own death. It's easy to underestimate the importance of the loss of Normandy, so let me warn you against it. So, warning, don't underestimate the importance of the loss of Normandy. We're back in that situation we'd had before. What do the barons do? They hold land in both places. The Beaumont family is the perfect example. They simply have to defect, at least in part. Walleron clearly hates this and goes on crusade to escape his conflict of loyalties in 1147. What it now means is that all the baronage of England had an interest in a solution that combined the Duchy of Normandy with the throne of England. So that meant they needed to take a risk and support one side or the other. Or they needed to find a compromise candidate. Hmm, someone acceptable to both sides. More and more, Geoffrey's son Henry would seem to be the answer to that question. Back in England, we enter a long period of dull, grinding warfare which revolves around siege warfare. You would not thank me for taking you through every siege, I promise you, so we won't do that. But it is worth looking at some of the major events of the following years. 1142 was notable for two things, the Siege of Oxford and the arrival of Henry in England. Basically, at the beginning of the year, both sides were pretty much exhausted from the exertions of 1141 and needed a bit of a rest. Both Stephen and the Empress appear to have been ill, so much so that Stephen's death was rumoured. 
Stephen wasn't idle, though, and significantly he made it up with Ranulph of Chester and brought him back into the fold. Temporarily, as it happens. And then by spring, the campaign start off again, and centred on Oxford, where Matilda had put her headquarters. Stephen besieged the castle, and this time was quite clear. No one was going to let the Empress escape this time. Meanwhile, the Angevins realised that they needed help if they were going to win this war. The Angevin camp was probably the more miserable of the two in 1142. After all, they'd had everything at their feet last year, and still not managed to finish Stephen off. So they needed more grunt, and what better place to find it than from Geoffrey Plantagenet? Matilda sent a note. Dear husband, please send lots of big men in armour. Geoffrey wasn't interested and said that he was far too busy reducing Normandy. There can't be much clearer a sign that the relationship between Matilda and her husband was not great. So Matilda sent Robert of Gloucester over to see Geoffrey and Robert was forced to trail around after Geoffrey for much of the year, asking for Geoffrey to come over for the cause and being held there by Geoffrey long after he wanted to get back. The upshot was that eventually Geoffrey let his eldest son Henry, now aged just nine, come over to England bringing with him 300 household knights. There was some propaganda advantage in having Henry there, but he wasn't able to make any significant difference to the situation with a force that size. We're not sure how long he stayed, actually, but it could have been for a considerable period. All we do know is that his next recorded visit was 1147, and that the 1142 venture produced no significant improvement in the Angevin fortunes. None of this was capable of distracting Stephen from the siege at Oxford. The bone was firmly in the dog's mouth. Oxford Castle at this time was strongly defended and surrounded by water, but after three months, provisions were running low. The Angevins were gathering an army further south at Wareham, but it seems they lacked the numbers to drive Stephen off. The Christmas of 1142 was apparently exceptionally cold, so cold that the Thames itself froze. Matilda and just four knights slipped out of the castle and were able to escape the besieging force by crossing the frozen Thames, dressed in white gowns against the recent snowfall. They walked to Abingdon and from there were able to get horses and escape to Wallingford. Just like at London and Winchester, Matilda had managed to escape, but her cause received another blow since Oxford surrendered soon afterwards. In 1143-7, the anarchy reached fever pitch. In this period, Stephen does begin to lose control of a number of key relationships. Once again, not all of the problems were Stephen's making, but nor does he manage to avoid them. The first major incident is the revolt of Geoffrey of Mandeville, Earl of Essex and custodian of the Tower of London. As we saw last week, Geoffrey had made a deal with the Empress when she'd taken over in London, but really no more than anybody else. And he quickly patched things up with Stephen as soon as he was released. But for some reason, Stephen didn't want to let things go. And in the autumn of 1143, he arrested Geoffrey and released him only when he'd surrendered his castles. Stephen seems to have had higher expectations of loyalty from Geoffrey. Much of the de Vanderville family power had waned after a run-in with Rufus and Stephen had helped build the family's fortunes back up again. But also it might simply be that Stephen feared the power of Geoffrey in and around London. However, the affair doesn't help Stephen's reputation. One thing he'd always had going for him was that if he had to make a choice between Hail Fellow Well Met Stephen and Call Me Empress You Worm Matilda, he'd go for Mr Nice Guy. Okay, so there'd been that incident with the bishops in 1139, but that was probably justified. But with Geoffrey, the arrest seemed arbitrary. And if it could happen to him, why not to others? This feeling never gets to the level, say, of a King John, but for the first time, Stephen is open to a charge of being less than fair and just a little bit sneaky. 
nor did it help Stephen's military situation in the short term. In July, Stephen launched a counter-attack against the position Robert of Gloucester held at Wareham, and suffered his second defeat in a pitched battle at Wilton. This time, however, Stephen has learned how to run away at the right moment, so although he's defeated, actually Wilton's military significance is not that high. But then he's unable to focus on the Angevin party because Geoffrey rises in open revolt, and Hugh Bigard joins him in East Anglia. And here's a genuine problem for Stephen. In the previous reign, Henry could discipline his barons with impunity. Individually, none of them could hope to take him on. In Stephen's reign, there's a ready-made opposition party any baron can join in the Angevins. So now Stephen had another big revolt to deal with. Not only that, but our friend Ranulf of Chester is once again in revolt against the king. Stephen took the war to him as well, and tried but failed to take Lincoln. We've not talked about Wales in the reign of Stephen yet, but you won't be surprised to learn that the anarchy has not helped the Norman cause there either. The Welsh fight back and started early, with a great victory in October 1136 called the Battle of Moor. The battle resulted in the death of Richard Fitzgilbert, head of the Clare family. It saw the rise of Owen Gwyneth, or Owen the Great, and the re-establishment of the Kingdom of de Hubarth, much of which had previously been lost to the Normans. Owen was pushing the borders of his Kingdom of Gwyneth steadily outward, for example capturing the castles of Mould and Rudland. So in 1144, with all this going on and raids from the Angevins into Wiltshire and Gloucestershire, England didn't look like a well-ordered and well-governed kingdom. But as it happens, we're probably at a turning point. At the end of 1143, Miles of Gloucester, one of the Empress's closest supporters, died in a hunting accident. In 1144, Geoffrey Mandeville died, ending his revolt, though Hugh Bigod was never properly dealt with. And then in 1144, Stephen took a major fortress in Oxford at Farringdon, which split the Angevin lands in the southwest from Wallingford, and wonder of wonders, Ranulf of Chester made his peace with Stephen again. Ranulf this time had cause to regret his decision as it happens, and we get another example of Stephen and his sneakiness. So it's worth looking at the whole incident. The Angevins had courted Ranulf, but the Angevins actually were pretty rubbish at speaking with one voice, and Geoffrey Plantagenet had confiscated Ranulf's land in Normandy, which really turns Ranulf away from the Angevin cause. Stephen made a treaty with Ranulf, and seemed at first to be including him as his leading advisor and taking with him everywhere. But Stephen was just messing with him. He'd been messed about enough by Ranulf. In August, an unsuspecting Ranulf was summarily arrested and his castles demanded of him. And to a degree, this works well. At Christmas, Stephen held his court at Lincoln, newly recaptured from Ranulf. But really, it's not a long-term good move. After handing over the castles, Stephen released him and Ranulf is then most definitely in the Angevin camp. But it's more the sneakiness thing that Stephen had to worry about. There'd been no proper process, so every other baron at court would be shuffling their feet, looking sideways at each other and thinking, look, this could happen to the bishops, to Mandeville, now to Ranulf, when's it going to happen to me? Suspicion and mistrust are not commonly the bedfellows of good government. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a bit difficult to work Stephen out on this one. One of his other great successes of the year is the defection of Philip de Guy, the son of Robert of Gloucester. Through his offices, Stephen also captured Reginald of Cornwall, half-brother of Robert. Great opportunity, you might think. But Reginald had been under truce with Stephen at the time of his capture, and Stephen therefore has no truck with this. This offends the laws of chivalry, and Reginald is released. Now come on, are you a ruthless tyrant determined to beat out the opposition and reassert the authority of the crown no matter what, or are you not? What are we dealing with here? People like to know what they're dealing with. But the truth is probably that by 1147 the Angevin cause was dead as a campaign to unseat Stephen. They gave it another hack with the arrival in 1147 of Henry Fitzempress to reclaim his inheritance. But again without the wherewithal to make it stick, and with absolutely no support from Robert or the Empress. In fact, Henry is so destitute by the end of the year he can't even afford to pay off his knights and go home. So get this, he asks his uncle for money to pay off his mercenaries. His uncle agrees to give him the financial support he needs to retain his honour. The uncle in question, incidentally, is Stephen, King of England. The chroniclers really stick it to Stephen about this one. The word childish is used. But actually, it's probably not that bad a call. Probably it's cheaper the price to get Henry back to France and out of England. And after all, Henry's just 14. It's embarrassing for the lad. And then in October 1147, Robert of Gloucester died. That's it as far as Matilda is concerned. The following year, the Empress left England never to return and never to make further effort to become Queen of England. There is one more phase of civil war in the form of the sons of the main protagonists. By 1149, Stephen's eldest son Eustace was now about 19 and beginning to take an active role in the war. Henry Fitzempress is now 16 and able to launch an offensive on his own account. Henry's 1149 campaign is therefore a bit more serious. He tried to engage the support of the King of Scots and Henry was in fact knighted by David. He got promises of support from Ranulph of Chester, but then Stephen turned up in the north with an army and the Angevins ran like rabbits. Henry made it to the southwest, did a bit of raiding, closely tracked by Eustace, and then headed off home for Anjou. Henry doesn't return for another four years. The Angevin party had really stopped actively trying to expand. They make no effective progress and seem to concentrate rather more on husbanding their resources and managing the lands that they did hold. I mean, after all, this has now been going on for a few years, why don't we all just forget it for a bit and go hunting? Stephen fails to close down this rebellion, but he's clearly militarily in the driving seat. And in the background, something really very interesting is happening. The nobility have all got bored of this struggle and begin to make agreements between themselves and arrive at separate, local pieces without involving the king at all. It's a bit like watching small children at a birthday party. The chocolate is initially attacked with wild abandon, but even at the age of six there's a limit to how many chocolate fingers you can consume. The biggest example is Ranulph of Chester and Robert Beaumont. These two men are supposedly the leading members of the respective parties, and yet around 1150 they make a separate peace, with no reference whatsoever to Stephen. They both agreed that if they're forced to fight each other by their liege lord, that they would use no more than 20 knights each. Beaumont even married his daughter to the son of Robert of Gloucester. There are other agreements going on, and I suspect many that we don't get to hear about. But for example, John Marshall is engaged in a major local struggle with Patrick of Salisbury around his holdings in Marlborough, and eventually decided this was not helping either of them. 
So they came to terms, which involved John divorcing his wife and marrying Patrick's sister. There are similarly agreements between the Earls of Derby and Chester, Leicester and Hereford, Leicester and Northampton, all making what has been called the Magnet's Peace. Which probably means it's time for us to debate what it was like living in the anarchy, and to ask the anarchy what anarchy question. Seems to me that there are two basic forces at work here, the normal chaos and ravages of war, and the freeing of the nobility from the constraints of central control. So thinking about the second of these... At the base of the feudal system is the concept of the rule of a local warlord, able to defend his lands and people against the depredations of an enemy such as the Vikings. In an age of very slow communication, it is a system of distributed governance that makes sense. England up to the anarchy is actually very unusual in Europe, being stunningly centralised as a result of the Anglo-Saxon system of government, which is seized on by a series of three very strong and determined kings. But it's not the norm. In France, Italy and what we now call Germany, there is a mass of local lords with almost complete independence from the central authority of the king or emperor. And actually the situation under Stephen might perversely be seen as a more normal situation. And that's probably the way many of the nobility did see it. Stephen's success in gaining the throne owed as much to him not being Henry as it did to his being Stephen. I.e. the nobility were just pleased to be out from under the harsh tyrannical rule of Henry I. So once freed of this central authority, the nobles went a bit wild with the chocolate fingers. They had two scores to settle, the exercise of what they might see as their proper local rights and local power struggles. It's probably the former that causes the most trouble. One of the things we see is something called tensorie. This is euphemistically known as a local tax, but what it really is, is protection money. Tensorie appears all over, and is very clearly a major example of an imposition that local peasantry are ill-equipped to bear and which causes widespread misery. Another target was the church. Lay nobles were usually very happy and indeed dedicated to the concept of supporting and endowing the church for the good of their immortal soul. But they didn't like the church exercising rights that got in the way of their own, and they figure that the church ought to be doing more to pay their way. So there's a bit of a reckoning. A good example comes from a letter from Abbot Gilbert Folio to the Bishop of Worcester regarding landowner William de Beauchamp. The abbot complains... 44 measures of threshed corn which were being carried to meet the needs of our brothers were seized by him and our hopes for their recovery had been put off. Besides this, we have for a long time been forced to give three shillings each month for the needs of his servants and at each season of the year we have been compelled to plough, sow and then reap 60 acres of his land. And on top of this, our men have been burdened with daily services and innumerable works and he has not ceased to pursue and afflict them to the depths of misery." So what we have in the anarchy is the decentralisation of English society. But the evidence is that in many places good governance continues. A good example of this is the coinage, which continues to be issued in reasonable quality throughout the kingdom. But the coin is simply issued by a wider range of authorities than before. We can overdo all of this. Oh, it wasn't so bad thing, which is very much the darling of recent historians. We talked a bit about this last week with Robert Fitzhubert. There are numerous chronicler quotes about the hideous suffering, and here's another one from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which talks about the fate of people whose faces didn't fit. They were hung by the thumbs or by the head. Knotted ropes were put around their heads and twisted until they penetrated to the brains. They used to put a sharp iron around the man's throat and neck so he could not sit or lie or sleep in any direction. But it's also possible that most of this torture stuff is related to the actual stuff of the Civil War. 
It's interesting to note that the high proportion of the chroniclers came from the regions where the Civil War was at its worst, where the actual fighting was going on, and so the chroniclers probably just reflect that local pain. Because it's equally clear that there were wide areas such as Kent and Surrey, for example, which were almost completely passed by, and for who the whole period was one of peace and normality. So the summary, I think, is that the Civil War was anarchy from an English perspective, but less so from a feudal perspective, and that order begins to reassert itself on a local level. The magnates begin to realise that the anarchy is not in their best interests. It gets in the way of revenue raising, and the evidence is the magnates also suffer a loss of power, as their own lords steal rights and refuse to deliver the service they owe. All this leads to a peace that is rather imposed on the main protagonists in 1153. And so on to the final chapter of the whole affair. 1153 is a momentous year in English history, a year that launched us into the Plantagenets and the Angevin Empire. Henry had become the Duke of Anjou and Normandy on the death of his father Geoffrey in 1151. He'd married Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152 and was therefore a major figure in his own right. He was 20 and likely to be able to command men more effectively than he had as a 16-year-old last time around. So in 1153, Henry launched his final attempt to gain his inheritance. This time he bought a reasonable army, and this time around he gains more enthusiastic support, notably from Robert Beaumont, who defects to the Angevin side. Robert had had enough of the anarchy and wanted a solution. He wanted Beaumont lands in England and Normandy reunited, and Henry was capable of doing that. His defection was a massive blow to Stephen. It was also rather more of a blow than Henry managed to inflict militarily. He did have some successes, but nowhere near enough to suggest that Stephen was in any way beaten or on the way out. The war once again began to focus on Wallingford, which Stephen was determined to take, and which Henry then marched to defend. The two armies faced each other across the river. But the nobles said no, enough of this. To Henry and Stephen's bitter disappointment, the nobles discussed peace terms amongst themselves, and rather than be left high and dry, Stephen and Henry were forced to agree a truce. As they sat in their tent, discussing terms, both complained bitterly to each other of the disloyalty of their followers, but they had no choice. Theobald, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Henry of Bois, as the Bishop of Winchester, did their best to act as mediators, but at this stage with limited success. Henry and Stephen separated. Eustace in particular was furious at the lack of a battle and stormed off to ravaged Cambridgeshire. A bit more fighting went on. Henry captured Stamford, for example, but was repulsed at Nottingham. Stephen captured Ipswich from Hugh Biggard. Then everything changed. In May 1152, Stephen's greatest supporter, his wife Matilda, had died of a fever. But Eustace had stiffened Stephen's resolve to establish his own dynasty. Stephen had even tried to get the English church to confirm Eustace as the heir to the throne, but the church's attitude had become more difficult towards Stephen. The arrest of the bishops in 1139 had disturbed them, and they were nervous of perpetuating the civil war by the wrong decision. Eustace had been a brave war leader and had taken a leading role in the more recent campaigns. But in 1153, he died, and Stephen was shattered. It's been suggested that peace had already been made at Wallingford, and this was why Eustace was so angry, but I don't buy it. Why the continued warfare, if that was the case? But the attitude of Stephen's other son, William, was clearly different, and was not an obstacle to peace. Peace then was made at Winchester in November 1153, brokered in particular by Henry of Blois and the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it was confirmed in the Treaty of Westminster in December. The terms are pretty straightforward. Stephen would continue to be king until his death, though required to take advice from Henry. Henry would be the king once Stephen had died. 
William Stephen's son would do homage for his father's lands and forswear any claims to the throne. All the foreign mercenaries were to be sent home, illegal castles were to be destroyed and the rights of the crown re-established. In January 1154, the oaths were taken. Henry of Blois retired to the continent, effectively now shorn of any power and influence, and Henry Fitzempress also returned to his continental lands to await his enthronement on Stephen's death. So everyone was essentially waiting for Stephen to die, and on the 25th of October 1154, he obliged. One other significant event in the same year is that in Nicholas Breakspeare we achieved the first and last English Pope, as Adrian IV. Actually, this is completely irrelevant to the narrative, but a useful bit of knowledge for that pub quiz. This means we've reached the end of a pretty unique period of English history and a pretty unique ruler. Stephen's press through the centuries has varied wildly. The Northern chroniclers loved him because he saved them from the Scots. John of Salisbury thought him a tyrant because of the rest of the bishops. Many others simply thought him weak in varying degrees. Seems to me that in this case comparisons are odious and comparing him to Henry I or Henry II, for example, is unfair. Stephen inherited a load of issues that no other king before him had to deal with, a disputed succession, a nobility chafing under the rule of Henry I. He'd absolutely stuck at it through 19 years of almost continual warfare and militarily more than held his own. But it's also worth noting that nobody forced him to seize the throne in 1135 and he lacked the critical edge of brutality and political judgment he needed to pull it off. He had his chance to bring Robert of Gloucester inside the tent. He proved himself too sneaky on too many occasions to be entirely trusted. In the end, he was a failure, despite the many attractive sides of his character, but far from being the fool or tyrant that many have painted him. So thank you very much again for listening. Next week it would be good to take a break from all the politics and have a look at how England was governed and what it was like to be part of English society in the 12th century. Something to look forward to then, hopefully, and I hope you'll join me then. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.